Hello and welcome to BB On The Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in this episode I'm joined by the celebrated conductor Martin Brabens. Martin has enjoyed a fast-paced international career, taking to the stage with many of the world's finest ensembles. But throughout his successes, he's never forgotten his years in the brass band world, which included early experiences at the Toaster Studio Band in Northamptonshire. From euphonium lessons with Bert Sullivan, to beating Trevor Groom in a solo competition, and attending the national finals, keep listening for Martin's reflections on those years. He also discusses rekindling his connections with the brass band world, gives his views on banding standards today, and ponders stepping into the adjudicator's box. But first, Martin reflects on conducting life over the past few months. In the autumn, funnily enough, I was really rather busy. So at English National Opera, we put on a a drive-in opera, the first fully, fully functioning thing probably that had ever happened on the planet. We did a drive-in bohème, you know, on a full festival stage with all the regalia, full cast, full chorus, and lots of cars in the audience who showed their appreciation by honking their horns. And it was broadcast on Sky Arts, and I'm sure it's still available. It was a very successful uh, venture. And then after that, I've done a few, would you believe, three live concerts with audience, two in Bournemouth with the Bournemouth Symphony, um, one in Liverpool. Those were both sort of October, November. And then my connection with the BBC orchestras is, has always been strong. And of course, BBC orchestras are broadcasting orchestras. They don't actually require an audience. So I've done uh, some lovely projects, I have to say, with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, the BBC Symphony, the BBC Philharmonic, and of course, my beloved BBC Scottish in Glasgow. And they were very special uh, events because of, you know, the, the restrictions of social distancing make things different, slightly more challenging. And you have to be slightly more inventive with your programming because you can't use a full orchestra. You have to really think carefully because of, you know, you can't have a lot of people in the same building. You can't have people in the corridors. So... You know, there's a lot, a lot to think about, but a bit, a very rewarding time, I have to say. The past few months have been extremely difficult for many people, of course, but it has been encouraging to see a great deal of innovation around. You touched on the idea of driving opera with English National Opera. How did that work practically for those in their cars? Well, yeah, that was that was my main concern. You know, the the staging was important, of course, it's hugely important. But what I was really very concerned about was getting a good, a really top class musical experience for the for the audience in their cars. So I got on board old colleagues of mine, sound intermedia in London, who are geniuses at making sounds. They're composers, they're creators, they know all about technology. And, and we, we had long, long conversations about what to do. And we, in the end, through Ofcom, we were able to get a FM band just for us. I think it was 88.6, just for that week. So cars came and tuned their radio to that frequency. And they had a, a BBC radio kind of quality broadcast. 
plus in the uh, in the car park at Alexandra Palace, we had a PA system. I was the audience in one show because my assistant did some of the shows, and the sound quality was not. Nobody's criticised us, and you know those those outdoor events, as we know, can be very painful. So we were we were we were very pleased with the result. What a wonderfully inventive idea. Now, I gather one musical activity in which you've been able to immerse yourself a little bit more of late is composing. How have you enjoyed spending a little bit more time on that side of your musical life? It's been amazing. I mean, I studied composition way back after my undergraduate degree and, you know, thought that might be a route that would interest. Well, it certainly interested me. But at some point I realised you know, there wasn't something burning to get out every day. And I moved towards conducting. But my my compositional studies and passion has certainly helped me in my conducting life. But uh, there was one, one particular musician inspired me to write a piece for him this, this lockdown. It's a wonderful viola player called Lawrence Power. And I wrote him a solo viola piece, which was filmed in the empty London Coliseum, our beautiful English National Opera Theatre. And it's a very striking, really moving affair because an empty theatre is in itself very poignant. The other thing that I've um, got out of of the attic and reworked a little bit was an an arrangement of Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet suite. I worked on that, would you believe, Mark, in 1985. Okay. So before, while I was a freelance trombone player and teacher and conductor, that which is what my first years out of uh, study were were uh, in, engaged in, and I did did this incredible. Well, I say incredible because it was such a lot of work tra- transcribing this orchestral score for large symphonic brass ensemble, piano and percussion, and I was asked by the BBC Symphony to do a brass project back in, well, we did it in December. And I suggested to the chief producer of the orchestra that we have a go at this piece, which had lain dormant since 85, because at the time we didn't perform it. It's been looked through by a couple of student groups uh, just to see how difficult it was. And it's, it is very, very difficult. <laughs> uh, I persuaded the BBC to have a go at it and we spent a couple of happy days working on a piece of John Pickard's actually and a piece by Dan Jenkins, who's a trombone player in the orchestra at BBC Symphony and my, uh, I think it's eight movements from Romeo and Juliet. And it was broadcast not long ago on the radio. You know what? It's quite exciting. It was, I mean, I, I, can, I can speak for all the players. It was not easy. I mean, some of it is ludicrously difficult. It's, it's real brass band virtuosity required for it and of course some of the players were of brass band uh, heritage it was it was just a, a amazing experience for me to 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 bring that to life it must have been wonderful as you say to bring it to fruition now we'll come on to your brass band heritage in just a moment but for now there's exciting news for music students at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in Glasgow, where you've been named as a visiting professor of conducting. How excited are you to take on this role with the institution? Oh, it's great. The conservatoire is going from strength to strength. It really is. 
they've got fantastic faculty of uh, conducting faculty led by uh, Michael Bawtree, who's a local Glasgow musician, fantastic musician, and a wonderfully innovative, thought-provoking guy who brings up really interesting ideas and projects for us to, to work through. So there are six students there. Because of the reputation of the, the, the conservatoire, there are really strong cohort students. And I think you know, that going into the future will continue. I'm going to work with them on Zoom, in person. We're going to work with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra when I'm when I'm up with them in a in a few weeks' time. I hope also with the RSNO, with the RSNO chorus, with Scottish Opera, and of course, I want to be a presence for the whole conservatoire. So only yesterday I, I took part in an online festival, uh, which I think most of the orchestra students were were zooming into that and I want I want to be able to do one project every year with the student orchestra and of course work alongside the master's students and the junior fellows of conducting so it's it's something very dear to me because I had an incredible conducting teacher I spent two years in in Russia studying conducting with one of the great teachers of the 20th century, Ilya Musin. And I kind of feel if I can pass on some of his incredible genius, then so be it. And frankly, Mark, I really find it very stimulating and enjoy anyone that teaches knows it makes you think very hard about what you do as a, as a, a practicant of, of what you're teaching. And I find that very stimulating, I must say. For a city of its size, Glasgow is quite blessed to be home to many of Scotland's national arts organisations. You know Glasgow, what do you make of it as a city in which to study the performing arts? I think you, you know, you've knocked, knocked it on the head there, Mark. It's a perfect thing to bring up. I'm also a visiting professor in London at the Royal College. And of course, London has a plethora of everything. And therefore, it's much harder for one organisation, one institution to gain access to, to everything. But in Glasgow, because it's a relatively small, although it's a big city, the musical life is incredibly rich. You know, I mentioned the RSNO, the BBC Scottish, the opera, the chorus of the RSNO. And of course, there's the Red Note Ensemble that we're going to also regularly collaborate with. So I think we could create a kind of a really rich and vibrant conducting hub if we can get input from all those uh, different organisations, because a conductor really only learns when, when you're actually given the instrument to learn on, the orchestra or the chorus or whatever it be. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity. Martin, your connections with Scotland go back decades, working with the likes of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, the BBC Scottish Symphony. Does Scotland hold a special place in your heart? Very much. Very much. I won the Leeds Conducting Competition in 1988, in July, I think it was. And weeks later, the SS, uh, the SCO, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, asked me to replace uh, someone uh, in, a, in a concert, in a festival in, in the Lake District in Kendall. And that was my very first professional, paid, proper conducting engagement ever. And therefore, for that alone, Scotland has played a significant role. But much more than that, Mark, is the fact that I've conducted the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra 
since 1992. So coming up next year to 30 years. And I've literally conducted, I mean, one of the guys in the office told me a couple of years ago, I'd done well over a thousand pieces with that orchestra from opera to world premieres to symphonic cycles. I've made a, a good 50 odd CDs with the orchestra for Hyperion and, and other labels. So I owe so much to that orchestra alone. And the, the mere, the longevity of the relationship is something that I am bewildered by and, you know, honored and flattered because to keep going back and I'm going back in a couple of weeks time, it, it's just a privilege. And it's been one of those incredible journeys that I've, I've seen the orchestra evolve and change and grow into what it is these days today into the new wonderful home in the city halls and it's it's just been a privilege so apart from the fact that i also love scotch whiskey so i mean you know what what more is there to to say about uh, scotland it's just a, a great country well, let's turn the clock back even further now to your early musical life, some of which was spent in the world of brass bands. Now, for anyone who might not know this, can you give me just a rough overview of those early days and those first steps in learning a musical instrument? I realised what an important part of my life it was. So my folks moved around a bit when I was a little chap, and by I think by the age of about eight or nine, we settled in a little town in Northamptonshire called Toaster is spelt Towcester. It's a Roman town on the A5. And the friends I made at school, at the junior school there, were in the in the brass band. So I decided I'd have a go. You know, my mother was, I remember the recorder drove a potty, so she never let me play that. But when I brought home a, it was a baritone horn, I remember, she was okay. And I had lessons through the from the band. And because there were a, a good number of us interested it kind of had there was a lot of energy behind what we were doing and there was a youth brass band conducted by a William Bell he was a wonderful old guy I still remember the personalities and quite early on I I made quite quick progress I got into the senior band Toaster Studio Band which was a again very very important part of my life was played by William Scholes who conducted the band was a Salvation Army guy I, I seem to remember he was quite quite senior in age. Uh, of course, everyone seems old when you're when you're very young. And I can still remember his style, his music making, his personality, and some of the things he he said in rehearsal. So I, I progressed quite quickly, and I got quite good. I used to win lots of solo competitions on the euphonium. I became principal euphonium in the orchestra. I played in the Northamptonshire County Youth Brass Band conducted by the wonderful John Berryman, who was principal cornet in the Gus band. Um, and then subs in my last, was I about 16? I went to Kettering, not every week, every couple of weeks, to have lessons with Bert Sullivan, who was a world-renowned euphonium principal, a Scotsman, actually, who was a world-renowned principal euphonium of the Gus band. And he really got me flying on the instrument. I used to go down to the Albert Hall every year to watch the finals of the National Brass Band Championships. I still remember Major Kenny coming on with his striped grey suit to conduct the Corey Band. And that suit, would you believe, Mark, it's there in the band room 
on the wall as as a as a memento in the Cory in the Cory band room. Um, it was a a very important part of my life. I was quite a competitive chap. I was a very keen sportsman. I was a very fast runner, and I played rugby for the county. So winning was important to me, and I think part of this competition ethic of the brass bands, although some people see it as a perhaps a drawback, it did encourage me to work incredibly hard and get good on the instrument. Wanting to study music, which in the end I had to decide between sport and music. So I broke some ribs in a rugby match. And of course I couldn't play for about six weeks. So I then decided music would be my thing. In order to go to university, which is probably what I thought I ought to do, I then took up the trombone because the euphonium wasn't seen as a serious uh, enough instrument back then in the late 70s, mid late 70s. So, I, yeah, I took up the trombone and went off. When I got to university, I would go back occasionally and play in the band. And then when I graduated, I went back to conduct the band. So I took over from William Scholes as the, the music I can't remember what music director, whatever they called me of the band. And I did that for a couple of years. So traveling from London to Toaster twice a week, you know, the kind of commitment and then doing competitions and so on. And then I'm, I decided it was a, the travel was a bit much. So I moved to the Averley band, which is a London, was a, a decent first section band in London. And I did probably a couple of years with them also. But then of course I decided that, I wanted to study conducting properly and I went off to to Russia for that. It's a fascinating journey that you've taken. How did being part of a brass band equip you either with the practical skills, you, you chatted about the, the love for competition uh, and that side to your personality, or perhaps just the wider approach to music in general. Have you been able to carry any of those skills with you through to your professional life today? And of course, conducting a brass band at a fairly tender age, you know, 21 or something. That takes some doing because, you know, brass bands can be opinionated and challenging and all the rest of it. So, you know, I learned how to deal with those kind of challenging situations within rehearsals and competitions, you know, they build up a huge amount of stress and dealing with that was, uh, is maybe set me in good stead. I'm a very happy performer. I feel, I feel very relaxed when I'm conducting. So I'm sure it's it's paid off in many different ways. I admire and respect all the musicians I work with because of the dedication and, and skill that they, they, they exhibit. From what you get to see in and amongst your schedule, what do you make of the current standards in brass band music making? Oh, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I had an introduction back into brass bands via James McMillan, the composer who, who runs a festival in, in Ayrshire. He asked me if I'd conduct a, a brass band concert in his festival with the Dal Mellington band. I didn't think, actually, we, we were in a restaurant, I think, or a pub. So I think we'd had a couple of pints. And I think I quickly agreed to do it. He chose a good moment. And um, it was just wonderful to get back with Dal Mellington. James had done some preparation rehearsal with them. We had a lovely programme. We had Resurgum on the programme. We had some Holst. We had my one of my favourite pieces, Pageantry by Herbert Howells. And funnily enough, Mark, we did a couple of my pieces that I wrote when I was a student in the early 80s. And, you know, Dal Mellington did a really cracking job with that. 
those couple of pieces of mine then got took up by the Corey band. So say no more. I actually am a, a relatively close neighbour to Phil Harper. He lives in Gloucester. I'm near Stroud. So we're about five miles from each other. We came in contact. I couldn't go to the concert that Corey were going to play my pieces in. So I went to a, a band rehearsal one cold, wet January night, I remember, about two or three years ago. Philip drove, drove me up there and goodness me, the standard was mind blowing. I mean, they, they sight read my two pieces. It wasn't, they weren't flawless, but they were as close as damn it to flawless. And I've seen, there's a, one of them's on YouTube and they play it incredibly well. I've listened to various things. I was artistic director of a festival here in Cheltenham back in the early 2000s, 2005, six and seven. And again, I, I programmed Brass Band in this international music festival. Corey's came and did the Gaia Symphony by John Pickard, which you, you probably know, it's a, a four movement, almost an hour long piece for Brass Band. I mean, it was just a feat of incredible musicianship and virtuosity. And then the following year, well, I had the Black Dyke band came and that was just, again, a sublime experience. And funnily enough, I, I remember this very well now. There was a, an old, well, he wasn't even a friend. It was someone I vaguely knew when I was a teenager. He was called Trevor Groom and he was the principal euphonium of the Gus band in Kettering after, after Bert Sullivan. And I remember beating Trevor Groom in the national solo championships in Oxford. And you, you know what? This was 30 years later. Trevor Groom brought it up and was still cross the fact that I beat him in this competition. So um, I've heard brass bands in the last decade and more and been so, so impressed at the, at the quality. It's un unbelievable. Well, talking of hearing bands in action, we now arrive at your piece of the podcast. This is an opportunity to showcase a work of your choosing. So just before we take a listen, tell me a little bit about why you've chosen this piece today. Well, I've chosen Eden by John Pickard. John has been a friend of mine for many, many years. He's Professor of Composition and Applied Musicology, I think it is, at Bristol University, which isn't you know, 30, 30 miles away from me down here. John and I became friends. We met at an amateur music event that we were both kind of professionally involved in. I've kept in touch with him, but more importantly, I've recorded quite a lot of his music now. It's various symphonies. I've given lots of world premieres of John's pieces. He's written pieces for me um, that I've taken with me all over the world. And I just find John's integrity as a musician absolutely wonderful. He's got his own voice and he, he sticks with it. But he's also, he's got a, a real heart and a, a wish to communicate. As a, a, a northerner, you know, he's from Burnley, brass bands were a very important part of his youth. And he's written some seminal pieces for brass band. And I think Eden... As test pieces go, it's, it's quite, a, quite a challenge, but it's got this wonderful, uh, dramatic scenario through it, ending in a blaze of glory. Um, and I think that whole musical journey is, is something very special. Well, you've set it up for us beautifully. Let's listen to the sound of Eikanger Bjorsvik Musiklag under the baton of Andreas Hansen performing music by John Picard. This is Eden.
The sound of Eikanger Björthvig Musiklag, conducted by Andreas Hansen, performing Eden by Dr. John Picard. That was the piece of the podcast as chosen by my guest today, Martin Brabins. Martin, I would be very interested to know what you make of the general perception of the brass band scene to the wider musical world. We often hear comments about high standards, especially at the elite level, and bands being a great way to develop technique and instill self-discipline and the ability to work as part of a team. But on the other side of the coin, it's often argued that bands are too obsessed with the world of competition, too preoccupied looking inward to invite conductors and composers and fresh voices from other musical walks of life. What's your reading of the situation? Well, I guess there's truth in all of that, isn't there, Mark? As with any situation, there's no one perfect route for for a genre to follow. And I think having competitions, as long as they're not the whole, the be all and end all of everything, is is no bad thing. It it does develop incredible technique. It's something that kind of gives brass bands its mojo as an entity. And I, I, I have no problem with them. It's a historic tradition, and it's something that uh, will continue. There's no question about that. What I what I think is so important on a sociological level, if you like, is amateur music making. It's just something that is priceless. And I think we all know that, particularly now in the pandemic, when brass bands, choral societies, amateur orchestras, all of which I'm involved in on different levels, Amateur, amateur music making levels, they're all silent and they're all as frustrated as, as, as can be expected. And I think on, on that level alone, brass bands are fundamentally important. And I just hope and pray that it comes back to, to full life again quite soon and that it can flourish and nurture, nurture young musicians and, uh, and old musicians in the way that it has always done. You know, this gap that we're in at the moment is slightly worrying. You know, what what's happening to the youth that go into brass bands every year? You know, they haven't been able to do that for at least a year. It may well go on, who knows for how much longer. Is the personnel re- going to be refreshed in the way that uh, we all know is absolutely essential? So, you know, people that look down their nose at a brass band, let them look down their nose. Don't worry about it. Just get on and do things the best we can as uh, brass band lovers. If people, you know, poo-poo competitions, just look at the number of classical music competitions there are. There are thousands of them. You know, I won one of them. I won a conducting competition. I took part in one or two others all over the globe, you know, Japan and Germany and so on. So I think it's a little bit uh, unfair if people complain about our... I say our, as, as a member of the Brass Band fraternity, you know, it's not an obsession with us, but it is something that focuses the mind of brass bands. And it's, it creates this wonderful uh, developmental progress th- through repertoire. I would urge a, 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 more, a wider scope of composer to be involved and, and you know, a wider musical language to be explored. I remember back in the, in the, in the heyday of Gary Howarth with Grimethorpe, you know, he commissioned some amazing pieces from Bert Whistle and there was Tippett and, and so on. It'd be nice if we could tempt some uh, really well-established, perhaps less sweet-sounding, less diatonic 
composers into the fold. And I know it would cause a bit, they, this music can cause a bit of a stir with the audiences, but I did a rather radical piece by a young composer with the Dal Mellington Band in that concert I did back in the day. And it, you know, it, it went down pretty well. And even with the players who had to chant and shout and uh, use their voices in the piece, it was, you know, if it, if the piece is interesting, I think all musicians will be interested to to get involved in it. So I think an openness is is also required from from the brass band world. And you touched again upon that fascinating project with Del Mellington a few years back and we know now of your connections with Philip Harper and the trip to Corey's Band Hall a few years ago as well. Could you be tempted at some point if the right opportunity came along to step into a band hall and, and work with a band? I could, of course, absolutely, yeah. It would depend on lots of different things. My schedule, even in this time, being music director of English National Opera, you know, I was Zooming yesterday for five or six hours with meetings and discussions and planning and, you know, let alone the preparation I have to do with uh, learning scores, the work I have to do with young conductors. So it still remains a busy time. But though I was certainly, I had a conversation with Paul Hindmarsh, who runs the festival in Manchester. He, he and I were in, in conversation some months ago about a possible recording project. So who knows? You know, I'm I'm certainly temptable. Is that the, is that a word? <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. The the arm could perhaps be twisted. Yeah. To take it one step forward, let's imagine an email drops in one day and it asks uh, very politely, would you be tempted to step into the adjudicator's box? Yeah, also I mean that would that would be an amazing experience. I mean it's slightly terrifying, isn't it? Because uh, you know, one only because it's terrifying because one has such a sense of responsibility. And I remember how cross as a player you get when you come third instead of second or first. You know, all those kind of things, and you hear the bands that beat you, and you think, oh, we were much better than that. So it's it's a very challenging role to, to undertake and you know to sit in there all that time and be in that box the only problem would be you know can you get out and have a pee when you need one <laughs> these are these are really valid points to consider <laughs> as far as your existing conducting commitments are concerned clearly the life of a conductor is usually a nomadic one traveling regularly all over the place you're working in quite close proximity to a lot of people often there are cozy spaces like orchestra pits involved. What do you think are some of the greatest challenges facing the arts over the coming months? Yes, I suppose cosy is 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 a problem these days, isn't it? Being close together is a problem. We have to be prepared to come back in a in a rather different way somehow, find a different format for, for working in the short term to keep everyone safe. I did uh, a BBC project last week in Cardiff and I had to have a negative test the day I arrived, the day I left home, and then uh, three days in, another de negative test. And I think that's going to become a, an absolute essential. With um, it, it makes people feel, even though those lateral flow tests may be not 100% reliable, it, it makes one feel safer. The social distancing within orchestral setups, it, it does raise challenges but they're not insurmountable 
the the biggest challenge will be how when you can get back a large number of people and in a pit as you mentioned you know english national opera has a we have a very very large pit we're blessed with the largest pit in in london but you know with social distancing the orchestra the full orchestra would be would not fit in so we we have to think about different ways of doing things possibly remote orchestra piped into the theatre that's uh, that's been done in in some opera houses or we just use a smaller outfit or we use we uh, platform over some of the stalls so we make the orchestra space bigger you know it's all it's all about keeping people safe and audiences too you know masks social distancing within within auditoriums i mean it it's a really sad reality that we face at least at least in the short term but i do think there's there's hope and i i've seen various bits of uh, research done about emissions from instruments and so on and it all seems there's conflicting evidence you know the same with singers you know they say singers are particularly infectious but it's probably no more than speaking loudly when when you hear on the news oh yes singing's really dangerous you know on the national news how must all those choral singers just like brass bands all over the country how must they feel when just blanketed all together as oh singing is a bad thing because it it's going to transmit the disease so i just wish the the messaging was better i have to say and clearer the vaccine of course will be a great help and i'm you know i'm 61 i'm hoping mine will come through quite soon i've got we got a daughter who's been who's got a medical condition in her 20s she's had her first vaccine so she's feeling much more positive and you know we just have to hope that the kind of the combination of the various elements that make people safe or safer come together quickly to in, to ensure that music making can get back on a on a really firm and positive footing because my goodness i know how much everybody is missing it not just the performers but music lovers you know it's music is an essential i mean that's a, that's another conversation which you know the government need to to take into account but uh, music is not an add on in life for most people whatever their taste music is an essential you know it's it would be great to get get us back all together again soon That's it for this episode of BB on the Record. Thank you to Martin Brabins and thank you to you for listening. Do get in touch about anything you might have heard on the podcast. You can email info at britishbandsman.com. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. That includes access to our exclusive Masterclass series with recent contributions coming from the likes of Richard Marshall, Tom Hutchinson, Brett Baker and Kirsty Abbotts. Go to BritishBandsman.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.